to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Maria Owen. She's an art historian and deputy director of the Swedish Institute for Classical Studies in Rome, and her research addresses late medieval visual culture in Italy, with special interest in the relationship between art and visions in the later Middle Ages. Maria, thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So today you are here to speak to us about Brigitte of Sweden, or St. Bridget of Sweden, as she is often referred to in English language texts. But before we get into her, let's talk a little bit about you. Obviously, you work on art, you work on visions, but how did you find yourself working in this field? Well, the story begins in Rome, where I will take you with Brigitte too. I was an exchange student in Rome, working on my MA thesis on cults of images in Florence. And I came across references to uh, miraculous images in Rome that were connected to Birgitta of Sweden. Apparently, Pietro Cavallini, this wonderful Roman artist, had, because of his own virtues, made a crucifix that could serve as a channel so God could speak to the Swedish woman, Birgitta, as she visited this particular crucifix in a church in Rome. And then... As a student in Rome, I started to ponder this Swedish woman and I noticed that there is a church on a central square in Rome, so 18th century church. It turned out that it was built on the spot where her house had been in the 14th century. And this interest in this Swedish laywoman in Rome made me curious about all these other holy women in Italy that crucifixes spoke to. And so I found myself in the midst of the mysticism of Italian holy women in the later Middle Ages. And, well, I can say I noticed that they all came to be visionaries and having visions. So I became particularly curious about this topic of visions and ended up writing my PhD dissertation in art history about visions. So that was my way into mysticism. Now I may be incredibly biased here, but I think among the world of mystics is a fantastic place to be. Do you remember the moment when you realized that you needed to focus some attention on Brigitte? I remember the moment I'm sitting with a fellow student from Finland also, an exchange student. We are discussing if we find material for our respective dissertations in libraries in Rome. He was working on reconstructing a library from a Brigittine monastery in Finland mostly pertaining to the order that she founded. And he claimed that there were absolutely no traces of Birgitta in Rome that I found very strange because I seem to encounter them everywhere, such as this church, for instance, or references in 15th century sources, etc. So I thought, hmm, somebody needs to explore Birgitta in Rome. And that led to a visit to the Biblioteca Apostolica Vaticana, where I found a lot and how does Birgitta factor into your current project? My current project is on female author portraits in manuscripts and early printed books where I'm interested in the rhetorical function of these author portraits. And that is something that also brings me back to Birgitta as there is a frequent use of author portraits in the manuscripts and early printed books containing her text. And I argue that this has to do with the need to legitimize her voice as a woman instructing in text, which was also, well, a way of transgressing a number of boundaries, including Canada, and try to show in what manner she is an author. So as I will come back 
to later. She's connected to this huge corpus of visionary literature, but this corpus always communicates her as a channel and not as an author. In fact, God is the author and she's an evangelist. So interestingly, the classical evangelist iconography that you find in manuscripts going back to the 6th century is appropriated for her. And I discovered that this is something that continues also as we come into the, the age of print. And the author portrait of Birgitta appears on, in connection to a number of prophetic texts that has actually absolutely nothing to do with her corpus, actually. So she is included in local prophetic texts from Florence, for instance, where I guess this image of her and the idea that she is a voice or a prophet connected to the particular text bolsters its authority also. Fantastic. That sounds like a really interesting project that still features the woman of the hour. So let's actually talk about Brigitte herself. Can you tell us a little bit about her biography? What do we know about her? Would love to. So we know actually a lot about Brigitte compared to other medieval women. So Birgitta of Sweden, whose full name was Birgitta Birgisdotter, was born in the winter of 1302-03 in the kingdom of Sweden. And she was born into an aristocratic family on both mother and father's side. They came from significant families in the region of Uppland in Sweden. And already as a young girl, or I guess that was marriageable age in this time, she was about 13 years old. When she was married to Ulf Gudmarsson, also from a Swedish aristocratic family. And in the Vita of Birgitta, like in most Vita of women, she is presented as someone who did not want to marry, who wanted to remain a virgin. And yet at the same time, it appears in other sources that they had a happy marriage together, a marriage that produces eight children. And Birgitta also holds an important position at the court of King Magnus Eriksson and Queen Blanche in Sweden. She's appointed magistra to the queen, also according to the Vita. But as we proceed into the 1340s, Birgitta's life changes dramatically. We learn uh, again from her Vita that she went on a pilgrimage with her husband to Santiago de Compostela, but that he fell ill on the way back. And they make a vow together that they will enter a monastery and have a chaste marriage thereafter. But Ulf dies in 1344, and Birgitta is then left a very wealthy widow. She seems to be living somehow in connection with the Cistercian monastery of Alvastra, and it is there that she experiences what, again, according to her Vita, is her calling vision. And I was thinking to share that calling vision with you. Yes, please do. That would be great. So this is shortly after her husband has died. And we learned that after some days, when the bride of Christ was worried about the change in her status and its bearing on her service of God, and while she was praying about this in her chapel, then she was caught up in spirit. And while she was in ecstasy, she saw a bright cloud, and from that cloud, she heard a voice saying to her, Woman, hear me. And thoroughly terrified, fearing that it was an illusion, she fled to her chamber, and at once she confessed, and then received the body of Christ. When at last, after several days, she was at prayer in the same chapel, again that bright cloud appeared to her. And then I will skip a bit, because this, of course, will happen three times, and she will be terrified all the time. But at some point, the cloud reveals itself and she can see that there is a human being in the cloud saying, 
Fear not, for I am the creator of all and not a deceiver. For I do not speak to you for your sake alone, but for the sake of the salvation of others. Hear the things that I speak and go to Master Matthias, your confessor, who has experience in discerning the two types of spirit. And say to him on my behalf what I now say to you. You shall be my bride and my channel, and you shall hear and see spiritual things, and my spirit shall remain with you even to your death. And this is the first revelation that the Gita has. And it also says something about what kind of mystic she will become. She is to reveal the word of God as a prophetess in the world. And very quickly after this, she changes her lifestyle significantly. She seems to become very much engaged with local politics, criticizing the king that she served, criticizing the nobility of Sweden that she belongs to. But she's also becoming involved in international politics, such as the war between France and England. And she is sending letters to the Pope, then residing in Avignon, that he has to mediate. And she's also beginning to criticize the Pope's residence in Avignon, urging him to move back to Rome. And this will be an important cause for Birgitta. And in this period, she also becomes a center point for a group of men pertaining to actually different orders. So the sub-prior of her Cistercian monastery joins her, and so does a Dominican. Both of these men are, confusingly enough, called Peter Olafsson, and also a bishop from Åbo in Finland, belonging to Sweden. And Birgitta travels then to Rome. We don't know exactly why, but we have reached like 1349, so perhaps in, on occasion of the Jubilee year. But from the Vita, we also learn that she's urged by God to stay there until the Pope moves back to Rome, where he should be. But she settles there in 1350, and she's soon joined by her daughter. And also this spiritual familia that she has around her, these two Peter Olafsons, for instance, who become her confessors. And she finally stays in Rome until her death in 1373. And that is where she has her career as a prophetess and visionary, we can say, where she also becomes the charismatic center point for a group of reformists. And this is also where she produces the bulk of the revelation. Moving from Sweden down to Rome seems like it must have been quite a change, particularly when she's already lost her husband and experienced all of these other changes in her life. Do we know anything about how she adjusts to life in Rome, what her social circle looked like, how she gained prominence there? What was that move like for her? So in Italy, Birgitta seems to very easily enter the circles of her own social class, let's say, the important families in Italy. So she visits the Visconti family, the ruling family in Milano. She is connected to the Acciaioli family, significant family from Florence. In Rome, she befriends members of both the Colonna and Orsini families, ruling families in Rome. And she becomes closely associated with the Queen of Naples, Giovanna Anjou, that she also stays with for several years. She also travels a lot, which is very particular for a woman in this period. A freedom she probably gets from her position as a widow, but also due to this large spiritual family she has now of men of significant, who hold significant positions too. She attracts, for instance, Alfonso Pecha of Jaén, or former bishop of Jaén in Spain, who has moved to Italy to promote church reform, but also to work for the return of the Pope from Avignon to Rome. 
And he will also soon be appointed an editor by the Gita. So she will produce her corpus of revelation together with him. Wow. So she stayed incredibly well connected in Italy as well and seemed to have this amazing support system. You mentioned that she dies in Italy. So what do we know about those last years of her life? And does this community surrounding her then make moves towards canonization? Towards the very end of her life, when she is a very old woman, Begitha travels on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land together with her spiritual family. And it is shortly after she returns in 1373 that she dies in Rome. And immediately her supporters uh, initiate the process of having her elevated to sainthood. And in connection to this, they begin the process of editing and publishing, let's say, her revelations. So they are edited into a corpus of seven volumes, to which Alfonso would add an eighth volume, in which he included visions that were particularly connected to kings. And these were copied in deluxe manuscripts that were sent around to targeted audience of royalties and the Pope and became the most important piece of evidence in her canonization process for her sanctity. So this is a canonization process that was also about visions. What are visions? Since as a recipient of visions, they sought to have her canonized. And they succeeded. I guess that must be the end of her biography right now in 1391. So not too long after her death, she was indeed canonized by Boniface IX. And this is during the Great Schism. So it had to be reconfirmed at several church councils later, as there was much opposition also towards her canonization. You were definitely right when you said that we know a lot about her in comparison to some of the other mystics of this period. You have been able to give us so much description in detail. It's incredible. You mentioned that she had her own corpus, that there were supplementary works written. Could we talk a little bit more about these documents, this evidence for her life, and what kinds of things it includes? Absolutely. Yes. So I guess the most vivid description of her life is, as in all cases of saints, the Vita. And this Vita is composed by these two men, Peter Olafsson, they have the same name, who also lived with Birgitta for more than 20 years. So they have been present in a lot of the events that they describe. But of course, the text follows all the rules of the genre. But it is perhaps the knowledge of them being active, participating witnesses in what they describe makes it on some level more vivid to read, I guess. But interestingly, we also have a lot of diplomas from Sweden that corroborate much information that we get from the Vita, in particular concerning the status of her family, a number of years mentioned, etc. And there are also diplomas in the Vatican archives that support various travels, for instance, when travel passes were issued. So we have this spectacular set of sources that allow us also to compare between diplomas and the Vita. And of course, there is the canonization proceedings. So we have three preserved manuscripts and a modern edition of these from the early 20th century. That gives us a very unique access to the kinds of thoughts that people in very different areas of Europe have about this woman. So that in the corpus, we have the positions from Sweden, but also from Naples and from Rome. And I should mention that she is venerated as, um, as one of these uh, living saints already in the late 1360s in Naples. 
but then we also have the opportunity to compare the impressions that people have of this woman in different regions, which is very interesting. And we can also see, based on the interrogation articles, what, what kind of strategies they deem to be productive in order to see her elevated to sainthood. What is it they emphasize? And something that has been particularly interesting to me is the way they view this phenomenon of visions. It's a continuous debate on what were her visions and were they really true or false? What does it mean that she has this particular access to God? And that brings me to what I find to be perhaps the most important and interesting set of sources, which are, of course, the Revelations, the Heavenly Book of Revelations, as they are called in full title. And this is a set of sources that is also a bit difficult to read in terms of how we imagine the author. So it's difficult to say that Begitta is the author. The work itself claims that Begitta is not the author. She's an evangelist figure receiving the word of God and communicating this to the world. That is something she is especially appointed by God to do. At the same time, it seems to be important to her editors, which count Alfonso Pecha that I mentioned, who is also appointed an editor by her. She asks him to edit her texts. This is information that appears in multiple sources, but also these two Authors of her Vita, the two Peters, are participants in the production of this corpus as translators, as sometimes scribes when they didn't have other scribes available. And they all seem to be very keen on saying that Vigita was writing down her revelation herself in her own language, in her own mother tongue, Swedish, as she received them. So they established a connection between the moment of receiving a revelation and the production of the text. And then she presents this to both of these Peters, or one of them, who then helped her translate this into Latin. And then, as they emphasize, she controls the Latin text, reads it afterwards and controls and checks that everything is exactly as she experienced it. So again, they're keen to present her as a literate woman in all senses. She could write in her own language, but she could also read Latin enough to know that they'd never missed anything or altered anything in their translation. And then this text was, well, we don't know where and how or in what manner it was preserved until some point in the 1360s, if Alfonso proceeds with um, the editing of what we have as this corpus today. And the revelations are found in more than 150 Latin manuscripts. So it is a bestseller, we could say, in medieval terms. But it also appears in a number of translations in different European vernaculars and in excerpts in anthologies of very different kinds of books. So it becomes extremely popular. And that is, of course, due to its contents which is also very varied. It includes all kinds of different texts pertaining to different textual genres. Incredible. And I really want to get into these different genres. But you mentioned that she was honored as a living saint in her life. And her first cult was actually in Naples. Do we know why she had so much impact there specifically? Well, partly this is connected to her stay in Naples for a couple of years when she is very close to the queen. Giovanna, and she's supposed to have done some healing miracles that are mentioned in the canonization proceedings there. But we also know that the efforts of her spiritual family, as I call them, 
her group of Peters and Alfonso, and this group also includes her daughter, Katarina, they have Naples as a base for the promotion of the cult. So the scriptorium, where the oldest sets of textual witnesses to the revelations we have were produced, a number of manuscripts in the same scriptorium, is in Naples, and this scriptorium connected to the royal family there too. And all the earliest images we have of Vigitta, paintings, like devotional images, intended to promote her also as a holy woman, they are produced in Naples. So we end up having Naples as the cult headquarters, and it's spreading out from there. I love that. Another thing that you said that I found really interesting was the fact that they emphasize how involved Brigitte was in the production of these texts and the recording of her revelations. Because sometimes we don't really get that, and then we can't tell how involved the mystic was versus how much was added by a scribe or a confessor, and then we get into hot debates about how much of the mystic's voice we actually see in the texts. So the fact that they emphasize how deeply involved she was is really interesting. Yeah, I think this material brings some, gives us some excellent examples of the kind of negotiation going on in this period or starting in the 13th century when it comes to understanding the relationship between human authors of scripture and God. So as Alistair Minnes has obviously written very splendidly on, I think this material also gives us um, a lot to think about when it comes to understanding what does it mean to be an author in the 14th century, and an author of a divine word. And also, on this point, I have a quotation from the Revelation that actually discuss who produces what, which is very interesting, I think. It is the revelation that settles the roles of the different participants in producing the corpus. Ooh, please share. I'm excited about this one. So this is a revelation that is included in a part of the corpus that is called Revelaciones Extravagantes. This implies that they are excluded from the main corpus and they were probably not submitted with the main corpus together with the petition for Begitta's canonization. But shortly afterwards, they have become a part of the main corpus. Perhaps the reason is that it touches upon something tricky in terms of authorship. So this is supposed to be a revelation that Begitta receives in 1372 when she's on Cyprus, coming back to Rome from the Holy Land. And in the vision, Christ is instructing Begitta to let Alfonso edit and check all the revelation. And I quote, the son of God spoke to the bride saying, I am like a carpenter who cuts wood from the forest and carries it home then carves a beautiful image and adorns it with colors and contours. His friends see that the image can be adorned with still more beautiful colors, and so they paint it with their own colors. I, God, cut words from the forest of my divinity and placed them in your heart. My friends edited and arranged them in books, coloring and adorning them according to the grace given them. Now, in order to adapt them to several languages, Give all these books containing revelations of my words to my bishop hermit. He will compile them and clarify obscure passages, capturing the Catholic sense of my spirit. My spirit sometimes separates my chosen ones from each other in order that they examine my words, as it were, on a scale and ponder them in their heart. And so after much thought, explain them more clearly and express them in a better way. Your own heart is not always capable and enough on fire to express in writing the things you experience, and so on. So here, 
basically Christ is explaining to the Gita how she must have help and that her different helpers have different important roles in the communication of the word of God to the world. And it's interesting that he's likening himself to a carpenter or an artist who cuts wood from the forest, carrying it home and carving a beautiful image, then needing his friends to adorn it further. That is incredible. And it validates not only her receiving these revelations, but also the roles of every person involved, that he's specifically chosen in a way to make sure that this comes out exactly how it was intended for all audiences. That is incredible. Now, you mentioned earlier about these works taking the form of a lot of different genres. It's not just revelations. It's not necessarily kind of mystical experiences. What kinds of things are we looking at when we look at these texts? Well, you could say that she's not even a mystic, depending on how you define the word mysticism. So she is not discussing interior experiences of union with God. There is little interiority in these visions, and she's very much um, placing herself in a tradition of, for instance, Old Testament prophets. So perhaps she's more similar to Hildegard of Bingen in one sense there than to other of her contemporary holy women in Italy. But she is a prophet, and she presents herself again and again and again as someone appointed by God to represent him in the world. But we can see that her visions pertain to many different genres. So the different chapters in the huge corpus includes more classical, otherworldly journeys uh, that we know from monastic, from an old monastic visionary tradition. They are full of letters. So many chapters take the form of letters addressed to specific people. And from these texts, we get the impression that she has been asked before in another letter on the opinion of God on a certain topic. And this can be very concrete. Should we go on a crusade to the Baltic region or not? Would be something that she would write to the king of Sweden, for instance. There are also a number of threats that she sends to, for instance, the popes residing in Avignon, and they can be very colorful, the things that will, or the descriptions of what will happen to them in hell afterwards, if they are not doing what she's saying. But there are also chapters that seem to be taken out of, of devotional books like the Meditaciones tradition. So she is meditating on, for instance, the birth of Christ or the crucifixion of Christ in a manner that is very similar to that particular textual genre too, where she is participating actively as a suffering witness. The book also includes what has by some researchers been read as a mirror of kings. So she is giving concrete advice on how to be a good ruler. And indeed, she has a number of letters that are sent to the King of Sweden and the Queen of Naples, in which she gives them advices on how to live, but also very concrete advices on how to act in a certain political context. And she is constantly advocating a spiritual and ecclesiastical reform. And of course, there is a topic of the Pope's presence in Rome, which is something that she comes back to again and again and again. In the middle of this corpus, there is also one long vision, which is in Alfonso's edition presented at book five in the eight volume corpus. And that is a particular vision where Gita sees a monk standing on a ladder that is set up between heaven and earth. And the monk is placed 
halfway up on this ladder and he is presented as a very problematic character. It is not a monk in the traditional sense, climbing the ladder of his virtues, but he is standing and quarreling with Christ on the ladder and asking questions such as, why did you give us free will when we don't have any free will in effect? Or what does free will mean? Or why did you give us senses that we can see and we can touch and we can feel? Questions that both have to do with something that a Christian human being could ponder, but also questions that are directly connected to important theological matters. And the text is also presented in a manner that is reminiscent of the scholastic disputatio. So in both content and form, this text is perhaps different than many of the other chapters. But as I said, they are pointing in all kinds of directions when it comes to what type of genres they connect to. I love that image of a monk standing on a ladder arguing with God. I think that's fantastic. What is it about her that makes her so controversial then? You mentioned that her canonization needed to be reconfirmed. So is there something about her work that made her controversial? Yeah, first it has to do with her political positions. So she's taking an active part in specific conflicts, for instance. If we focused on her first set of criticism, which would be against her own Swedish king, King Magnus Eriksson, she is very harsh in her presentation of him and his politics. It's very clear what she agrees and disagrees on. So that would have given her some enemies in Sweden. It's hard to imagine how she would suddenly be venerated as a saint there when she left after having caused perhaps a scandal, I don't know, uh, when it comes to criticizing her own social class and king that we knew she had been very close to earlier. Then she is voicing her opinions or the opinions of God on the topic of the Hundred Years' War. So she seems to be siding with the English king there, and she is sending letters to the Pope in Avignon on how to proceed and ensure peace between these kings. But her concrete propositions for peace is also based on giving more to the English king. Then it's, of course, her threats on the topic of Rome and the papacy. She is threatening with all horrible things that will happen to the Pope if he does not move back to Rome. So this is also something that, especially during the schism and afterwards, when things were still quite difficult and a lot had to be settled in various councils in Constance and Basel, that she was a part of a very specific political reform group that had always sided with Rome all the way. But also in other conflicts, she has visions in which she enters into the big debate in the Franciscan order on property and ownership. And she is criticizing different monastic groups. I mean, she doesn't belong to a particular order, we can say. She is close to a number of members from all the prominent orders active in the 14th century, which is also going in and criticizing specific powerful monasteries in Italy. So there would be a number of different groups, let's say, who would have different reasons to perhaps not be opponents of her canonization, but her revelation corpus. And perhaps the most famous is Jean Gerson, the chancellor of the University of Paris, who in the Council in Constance in the early 15th century presents a treatise on this topic where he is highly negative to the spread of her texts and the fact that they were 
presented as equal to scripture. They were quoted on par with scripture by members of her own order in their sermons, for instance. So I have to say that, of course, she is connected to her own order that she is supposed to have founded, but she was never a member herself. She never takes any vows. She, But this order, she seems to be constantly seeking the approval of a rule for an order, which she doesn't get. But she got the approval for founding a monastery. And her rule, which also figures in the textual corpus, becomes addenda to the Augustinian rule they live under. But this order is, the first house of the order is in Sweden. And monastic life there, let's say, begins after her death. But I think also another thing that could have been controversial is that she presents herself all the time as extremely close to the Holy Family, let's say, or members of it. She presents herself as the Bride of Christ. And Virgin Mary is somehow a mother figure to her, but she is also supposed to be representing the Virgin in the world. And she gives a much more important role to the Mother of God than she has in most cases, let's say. So the Virgin Mary is a co-redemptrix. She plays an important role in salvation history, a role perhaps equal to Christ almost. And this is also supported by visual evidence in the illuminations, in the earliest manuscripts we have. There are images of Begita being presented with what I mentioned also as a type of evangelist iconography. And there we see often the Virgin and Christ being next to each other and presented as exactly equal as they are representing the voice of God, let's say, communicating to Begita. And this is also how the Virgin seems to appear in text too. So she has a very, very important role. And in this sense, Begita is introducing an idea of feminine primacy too. So she's challenging the role of men in Christianity in an important sense too. And this is also brought forth in her criticism of priests in her time. So that's another point that people probably found difficult. This, this affinity, particular personal affinity with Christ and the Virgin, her presenting the Virgin as so important. I found another quotation for you where she likened herself to the Virgin and her mission in the world as basically equal to that of the Virgin with the Incarnation. Okay, yep, I see how that might be going a little too hard, taking it a little bit too far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, criticizing kings, criticizing the Pope, criticizing priests and monastics, all of that is pretty par for the course. And emphasizing the importance of the Virgin Mary, also fairly normal, but saying not only is the Virgin Mary important, but I am as important as the Virgin Mary. That is different. Please, please share this quotation. I want to know how she goes about this. So this is a vision that Birgitta is supposed to have in on Christmas Eve, important, in the 1340s. On Christmas night, such a great and wonderful feeling of exaltation came to the bride of Christ in her heart that she could scarcely contain herself for joy. At that very moment, she felt a wonderful, sensible movement in her heart like that of a living child turning and turning around. When this movement lasted, she disclosed it to her spiritual father and certain spiritual friends in case it might be an illusion. By sight and touch, they marveled at the truth of it. At high mass on the same day, God's mother appeared to the bride and said, daughter, you are marveling at the movements you feel in your heart. Be assured that it is no illusion, but shows a similarity to my own delight and to the mercy done to me. Just as you do not know how this feeling of exaltation came so suddenly to your heart, 
so too my son's coming to me was wonderful and swift. As soon as I gave my consent to the angel who announced to me the conception of God's son, I immediately felt something wonderful and alive in me. When he was born for me, he came forth from my untouched virginal womb with an indescribable feeling of exultation and a wonderful sweetness. Therefore, my daughter, do not fear that this is an illusion. Instead, be thankful that this movement that you feel is a sign of the coming of my son into your heart. As my son has called you his new bride, so I call you now my daughter-in-law who belongs to my son. When a father and a mother grow old and inactive, they give their daughter-in-law work to do and tell her what has to be done in the house. Similarly, now that God and I have grown old in human hearts and their charity is cold towards us, we want to indicate our intention to our friends and to the world through you. This movement in your heart will continue in you and grow according to the capacity of your heart. Okay, the idea that Brigitte was needed because the Virgin Mary and God are suddenly old? That is a wonderful visual image that makes me very, very happy. But also because she was married, you know, she had children, this idea that it's her responsibility as the daughter-in-law to take on all of this additional work assigned to her by her mother and father-in-law, that just, I think, tells you a lot about what her potential in-laws were like. <laughs> Gives a little glimpse at her lived experience there. But placing her in this family really does, as you're saying, kind of put her on the same level as these holy figures, that she is not only the bride of Christ, but she's been fully embraced into the responsibilities of this family unit. This little piece of revelation here is also interesting in the sense that it is one of the few times that we see um, some kind of somatic expression for her visions. So Birgitta is different than a lot of her contemporary holy women in the sense that there is little focus on the physical effects of her mystical experiences, let's say. There are no descriptions of trances or crucifixion pantomimes. But in this case, we learn that there is a physical movement in her heart that her confessors could verify with sight and touch. So this must have been, well, visible and you could feel it from the outside. And this is also mentioned again in the Vita, that this happened every time she had visions, they came. So that would mean that this implied connection to the Virgin is repeated also. In fact, every time she has a vision, this child is turning in her heart. It also really makes the nativity and the physical human sense of Christ being born bodily really central to all of her experiences, since they are always connected to this feeling. And I would say this revelation is connected to another chapter that presents a vision that Birgitta experienced when she was in the Holy Land in Bethlehem in the Nativity Church. And this is perhaps one of the most famous visions and one that is frequently mentioned in the canonization documents as an example of the authenticity of her revelations. So in this vision or revelation in Bethlehem, Birgitta basically sees the birth of Christ. And she can describe this in a manner that differs from the authoritative text, let's say, the Gospels that present this event with very few words. There is, of course, the apocryphal tradition that gives us more details to the birth of Christ, the Proto-Evangelium of James, for instance. But here, Birgitta describes it in detail. And she, of course, knew what a birth was. 
And she's careful to describe it as being completely different from a normal birth in the sense that it is absolute purity. There is no blood. There is no pollution in any way. And then the actual birth moment seems to be described as a meditation. The Virgin is kneeling in prayer and meditating in the same way as Begitta is doing when she is present in the church. And then she has a sudden visionary experience of God incarnate. So Christ is suddenly in front of her in an explosion of light. And all of this happened so swiftly that it was not possible to see with what part of the body the Virgin gave birth. And it is strongly implied that she didn't give birth with any part of the body at all. This was a vision, which was a corporeal vision. So also in this sense, Begitta compares her own experience to that of the Virgin. It is something visionary. And we also learn that she gets to take part in and have knowledge that is more deep and true than what is communicated in scripture. So in this sense, she is also an evangelist. She can describe the life of Christ, but she was present in a moment that nobody else were present in, not even who I guess gives the longest account of it. And it is not surprising that this is also the vision that is chosen for Begitta's first saint's portrait. So the first images we see of her is when she is beholding her vision of the nativity of Christ. And that was perhaps also a way to kind of softly introduce or give her her own saint's portrait before the canonization, because it is, on the one hand, not an image of Begitta, it's an image of the nativity. And at the same time, it is an image of Begitta's vision. So she's the only reason why we can see what we can see. But also there, visually, Begitta is mirroring the Virgin as uh, kneeling meditators. And as you mentioned earlier, these author portraits are what you are working on now. So obviously, Birgitta has been able to stick with you. And as we're coming to the end of the podcast, we have the one final question. You've told us so much about her and the interesting aspects of her life and work. But why is it that you particularly like Birgitta? Why is she your favorite mystic? Well, I guess she must be my favorite because she's truly the most outspoken figure among women I have discovered in medieval sources and she appears everywhere and she travels everywhere and as I was working on these revelations for a long time I found it sometimes hard to like her because she was constantly negative and criticizing whereas I would enjoy much more reading Catherine of Siena perhaps but the thing is she is so extraordinary when it comes to how much she has done, how many subjects she touches on and how much traveling she did, that she could in fact be such a public figure that moved so much across so many geographical areas. I guess that must be why she is my favorite. I totally see where you're coming from with that. I mean, you spend so much time with these mystics and in some cases they are very critical of the people around them and those they feel are not measuring up to the standards expected of them. They're so critical and you kind of want to just say, could you just stop complaining? This can't be as bad as you're making it out to be. There are other things to think about. But at the same time, the fact that they were able to say these things and not only say them, but that they were preserved and we are still able to read about them today, it does kind of make them pretty wonderful. Absolutely. And I promised myself at some point after I had done the um a companion to Begitta of Sweden for Braille that now I'm leaving Begitta for some time, but I keep coming over sources to her, like all the so-called 
false Begitta revelations that circulate in Italy in the Renaissance, where her image is attached to all kinds of local political text. Um, in the 15th century wars, for instance, in Italy, where they are, somehow it is argued that Begitta talks about Florence. Uh, Begitta becomes a local prophet everywhere in Italy. So I have to work on that material too now, it seems like. Well, it sounds like Brigitte of Sweden in Italy is the gift that keeps on giving. Maria, thank you so much for joining me today and for telling me all about Brigitte of Sweden. Thank you, AJ. It's been fun. It really has. And thank you all for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic and join me next time when I speak to Genevieve Caulfield about Dorothea of Montau. 